Some time ago, on a TV program, two prominent churchmen were giving their views on the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you, I'm sure, uh, remember that, and perhaps some of you saw it at the time. It must surely have moved every true child of God to contempt to hear a so-called Protestant Anglican minister deny that the Son of God actually rose from the dead. And to make matters worse, the Roman Catholic priest who was interviewed on the same program did his best to try and uphold the doctrine of the Lord's bodily resurrection. And while we certainly oppose Rome for her unscriptural dogmas and beliefs and practices, yet at least one person on that occasion did try to say something in favor of what the Bible teaches. And in the Gospel of Mark, we read that chapter 16 and verses 9 to 20, we are certainly informed of the bodily resurrection of Christ as a fact. It happened. And by the way, these important verses, verses 9 to 20 of Mark's Gospel, are cut out of many, many modern ecumenical translations of the Bible. They're not there. They're cut out. And we're not surprised, are we, that an ecumenical apostate has no faith in the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. In verse 9 of that chapter, the Holy Spirit tells us two things in that verse. First of all, that Christ did rise again. It says, now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week. That's definite. So it tells us Jesus did rise again. And secondly, the same verse tells us that Christ then appeared to certain people. Look what it says. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. The word first obviously means that he appeared to others as well. He appeared first to Mary and then to others. Indeed, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 6, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this present but some are fallen asleep that doesn't mean to this day in which we live but to the present day in which Paul was writing some had fallen asleep and some were still alive when Paul wrote those words now after he rose from the dead. 
the Lord Jesus gave some instructions to his followers. And they apply to you and to me just as much as they applied to the disciples at that time. And so in this 21st century, they do apply to us as much as they did to the disciples. In verse 15, he said to his disciples, and he says to us and to the church today, he says, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, that is the business of the church of Jesus Christ. That is the business of God's people, to spread the word, to disseminate the good news, to tell others that Christ died, Christ rose again, he's alive, he's able to save to the uttermost all who believe on him. Are you spreading that message? Are we busily engaged in spreading abroad the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what the church is for. And that's why we send forth our missionaries. That's why we pray for them at home. That's why we gather up the means whereby they can continue in the work. That's why we give of ourselves to prayer and of our means to support God's people as they spread the word and teach others the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with these words in mind, and with that commission in mind, let us now turn to our text in John chapter 3 and verses 15 and 16 and sorry 16 17 and 18 there are three great things here first of all in verse 16 there is a great fact the fact that god is there is a god and in verse 17 there's a great purpose and in verse 18 there's a great responsibility Let's look at these three greats in each of these verses tonight. Notice here then the emphasis is put on God. The person of God is emphasized in verse 16. It reads, for God, for God so loved the world. This is an age of gross unbelief, isn't it? Unbelief in the existence of God. Modern man, with all his achievements, thinks that he is his own master in his own house. He does not need God in his life, and he does not think of God in his mind. The world is full of those who imagine it modern and trendy and cool to deny that God exists. It's happening in our universities and colleges and throughout all strata of society there are those who deny 
the very existence of God. But this verse brings to us a great fact. For God, God is there. God is. He has been from all eternity. He is present. And he will be throughout all eternity to come. The world is full of those who deny the Lord. Such a view does not take God by surprise. God is not surprised when so many today in our land, and they're increasing by the, by the day, so many in our nation increasing by the day who deny his existence. God is not taken by surprise by that because we read in two Psalms, Psalm 14 and also Psalm 53, we read of such people. We read about them. And God calls them fools. Fools. He says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And if you look at, a little closer at these references from these Psalms, you will see that the words there is, is in italics in our authorized version. And of course, that's the right version to have. And the only version that is acceptable to us in this ecumenical age. And there is not a word here for the atheist to be encouraged because the fool has said in his heart, no God, no God. How foolish it is to profess that people believe there is a God and yet to keep him out of their lives. There are many out there perhaps who'd say, yes, I believe in God. But they keep him out of their lives. I trust there's no one here who's doing that. Yes, you come to church. You assemble with God's people. You like to hear the scriptures. And yet, maybe still you're keeping him out of your heart, out of your life. And it might as well be that there is no God as far as that is concerned. How tragic. How sad. That is, God is real. And God is watching. And God is watching over us. He's watching you. And one day, you will be called to give an account of your life to him. Oh, I wonder how that shall go. A journalist was once interviewed on a radio uh, show, and this was the question he was asked. He was asked, what would you consider to be the most devastating thing to happen in your life? What would you consider to be the most devastating thing to happen in your life? And without hesitation, he answered, if there is a God. How tragic. If there is a God. 
Some time ago, maybe 10 or 12 years ago, you may remember it, a group of atheists organized an anti-God campaign. They designed a poster to be carried on the London buses. You remember that? The message on the poster was, there is probably no God, so don't worry, just enjoy yourself. That's what the message contained. There is probably no God. Just enjoy yourself. Don't worry. Why did they say probably no God? That was interesting, I thought. Like that journalist I just mentioned a moment ago, there are many people who deny the existence of God, but when challenged about it, Maybe they're just not so sure. Maybe there's some doubts about their own belief crop up in their mind. The Bible tells us clearly that there is a God and that he has designed a law by which people have to live if they want to go to heaven. If we break that law, we are doomed for all eternity. Wouldn't it be wise then for people to investigate the claims of the Bible in order to be wise to the truth and to see what the Bible teaches rather than ignore it and live all their lives in uncertainty only to discover at the end that they have deceived themselves. That would be a tragedy. Oh, thank God, God exists. We have no doubt about that. We just want to reaffirm it in our minds. We want our hearts to respond like Big Ben and say, Amen. Yes, God exists. And how do I know? Because he lives within my heart. His son reigns there. Jesus Christ is my redeemer. He's my savior. Now again in John 3.16 here, not only do we have God's person emphasized for God, but we have God's love emphasized. It says, for God so loved. How can we ever start to describe the love of God what an impossible task. Yet we must try to say something about it. The Lord uses only a two-letter word to describe his love for mankind. That's all he uses in this text. It says, for God so loved. A two-letter word. The thought here surely is that the love of God is unique. It's special. The word so is impossible properly to define and explain. To the person hearing these words, we gladly say the love of God is to us unmatched. The love of God is unfailing. The love of God is unceasing, albeit it is undeserving. 
None of us deserve it. And yet God loves us. He so loved the world. If you can be certain of nothing else, be assured of this one thing this evening. God loves you as an individual. God's love is great. And because he has written it in his word, it says, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word, the word that God loves us, will never pass away. It's written indelibly. Thank God we can be certain that God loves us. <coughs> the hymn writer, Fred Lehman, he wrote these lovely lines. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the brightest star and reaches to the deepest hell. <coughs> These are words which uh, ring true to the heart of every child of God. The inspired statement of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, sets before us this glorious truth. And Paul writes, he says, God commendeth his love toward us. <coughs> In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Is that not love? Is that not great love? Is that not love which is inexplicable how could God love a world of sinners lost wicked defiled sinners evil in their hearts turned their backs on God despising him and yet he loves us for the Lord Jesus Christ even loved those who nailed them to the cross crucified him lifted the hammer and with those heavy blows drove the nails through his hands and his feet. How do I know we love them? Because preaching on the day of Pentecost, Peter accused those standing before him. He says, Whom ye have crucified and with wicked hands have taken and killed the very Son of God. And yet amongst that crowd were some of those who that day were converted to Christ out of the 3,000 that came to know him. Isn't God a wonderful God? And yet Christ's a matchless Savior. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. And the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. Oh, what love was bestowed upon us. Not only is God's person emphasized here and God's love, but God's gift is also emphasized. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave. Oh, what a gift. When the Lord Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach the gospel in all the world, as we read in Mark chapter 16, he sent them out to declare facts. To declare facts. 
truths that have been proved. The fact of God's person. God is. He's alive. The fact of God's love. God's so loved. The fact of God's gift. He gave. He gave his only begotten son. What did God give? He gave his only begotten son. What a price to pay for the redemption of mankind. What a price. Salvation is free to the trusting soul. But it cost God a high price. He gave everything when he gave his son. Someone has said he bankrupted heaven in order to save a guilty, unclean, hell-deserving soul like mine. That's true, friend. And when you think about that, doesn't it bring the whole scene of the cross before you? Now, this raises a very important truth. Why did God send his son to be the saviour of men? It was because men and women are lost in sin. From the moment they are born until this present time, they are sinners unclean in the very sight of God. And friend, your sins have brought a division between you and your God, your creator, so that you can have nothing to do with him. Your sin separates you from God. And if you die as you are without Christ, then you will perish in outer darkness forevermore. You'll be lost. <coughs> Dear friend, we're dealing with the most solemn of facts tonight. The most solemn of truths. God's person is a fact. God's love is a fact. God's gift is a fact. And God's Son is a fact. Also, it is a fact that you're a lost sinner. And you need to be saved. Oh, I trust that everyone in this house tonight is saved. Has been washed in the blood. Reconciled to God. But if perchance you're not, then you can be. And right now in this very building, you can lift your heart to the Lord and cry, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And God will hear that cry. And he will come and remove your sin. You'll be cleansed in the precious blood. You'll be reconciled to God. You'll be made his child and an inheritance. Heritor forevermore of heaven. Can anything be better than that? Is Christ not worth trusting for all of that? Receiving into your heart, believing in your heart that is your Savior? Let us come secondly. We have seen a great fact. God is. Christ is, and his word is. But there's a great purpose. Verse 17. This verse is a wonderful verse. <coughs> verse 17. 
verse 17 of John chapter 3. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This verse is clear on two points. In the first place, we get the negative. The negative teaching of the verse is this. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. The word not, N-O-T, is there. That emphasizes the negative. Now, should God have chosen to condemn and to destroy this evil race, he would have done nothing wrong. He would still have been God. But praise God, he's the God of grace. He's the God of mercy. He did not choose to give us what we deserved. Otherwise, we'd all be in hell this evening. No, God is not calling for your condemnation. Many in the world today have got the impression of the Lord Jesus Christ that they can't be saved unless they get to know more of the Bible, unless they clean up their lives, unless they make themselves good. This is not the way to God. This is not the way to heaven. Christ came not to call the righteous, but he came to call sinners to repentance. He paid the price for their sin. He died for them. He suffered on the cross. He shed his blood that their sins might be washed away. And thank God there's cleansing still in the blood of Christ. There's power in the blood. I wonder how it is with your soul tonight. It cannot be put too strongly that men and women are born sinful. They're born unclean and hell-bound. And unless they're born again, they'll never be in heaven. And if you're out of Christ, there is not a single reason on earth for you to rejoice, to be happy. Of all men, your state is the most wretched. And yet, thank God, the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to this world to destroy you, but to save you. Perhaps you have come to see yourself as hopeless in the sight of God, and so you should, you ought to. And still Jesus came not to condemn you, but to save you from your sins. In the second place, John 3.17 is positive. Not only negative, but positive, because it goes on to tell us that the Son of God came to save, but that the world through him might be saved. Saved, condemned or saved, which is it? Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now how blessed is such a word as this. Here is the lamp of hope, which burns brightly for each one of us tonight. We are sinners, but Christ 
save sinners just like you and me. It is not the turning over of a proverbial new leaf, as some would say. It is not a code of ethics that saves, or a church, or even membership of a church that saves. It is Jesus Christ alone that saves. And if you're ever going to be saved at all, you can be saved by Christ alone. Christ alone. We offer to you not a church tonight. We offer you a living person as your only hope of salvation. And truly, there was a great purpose in Christ's coming to earth. He came not to show us how to live. Yes, that's there. He came not merely to set us a good example, as many think today. He came to save us from our sins. Those sins which drag us down to hell and down to the pit. If Christ be not the Savior, then the Bible declares him to be one who is unreal and untrue. But Christ is our Savior. If Christ be not our Savior, we have no hope. Thank God this is the message every true servant of God, every true witness is sent out into this world to preach and to teach and to show others the way of salvation. Christ is that way. We have been sent to point sinners to Christ, show them Calvary, the uplifted Son of God, the only one who can save them from their sin. And then finally, in verse 18, there's a great responsibility. In this verse, the way of salvation is made clear and simple. It says, he that believeth on him is not condemned. That's simple. Isn't it good that the way of salvation is simple? As the Bible says, the way of fairing man, even though a fool, need not err therein. W.P. Nicholson used to quote that verse often, and he would say, the fool is a three-quarter Egypt. And there are many of those in the world tonight. And thank God, even the fool, the Egypt, can be gloriously converted. There's hope in Christ. There's life everlasting. Thank God there's hope as we preach this gospel. It is good that Christ came and gave his life for us. And to believe in Christ to the saving of our souls is to receive him by faith into our hearts. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says to us, but to as many as received him. To them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. Receive and believe. Let me accept Christ and believe in mine heart. Trust him. Notice how the words receive and believe are used here. 
It is your personal responsibility to receive Christ as your Savior. And thank God the Holy Spirit will confirm to your heart that belief that you're his child. Oh, thank God the hymn writer could say, "'Tis done, the great transaction's done. I am my Lord's and he is mine. He drew me and I followed on, charmed to confess that love divine. I'm glad for that day when, as a boy of 14 years of age, he drew me. I followed on and I was charmed to confess his name, his love, his grace. That divine purpose in Christ to bring salvation to the lost. Oh, may God help us to spread the message. And in verse 14, there's mention of the lifting up of the serpent of brass for the relief of Israel in a time earlier when the people were bitten by serpents. And Evidently, our Lord selected this passage of Scripture in the Old Testament as an apt illustration of his own crucifixion for sinners. There are several points of resemblance, but I'll just mention a few of them. First of all, as the Israelites were in sore distress, And dying from the bites of poisonous serpents, so is mankind in great spiritual danger and dying from the poisonous effects of sin. Next, as the serpent of brass was lifted up on a pole in the sight of the whole camp of Israel, So Christ was to be lifted up upon the cross publicly and in the sight of the whole nation at Passover time. And that happened at Calvary. And then again, as the serpent was lifted up on the pool, was an image of the very thing which had poisoned the Israelites. That serpent reminded them of the poison of the serpents. Even so Christ had in himself no sin, and yet he was made sin. He was made sin and crucified as a sinner for us, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place. He took my place. He suffered for me as a sinner on the cross. And the Bible says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. The brazen serpent was a serpent without poison. You ever see that? The serpents on the ground, they were poisonous. The one that Moses made and set upon 
the pool had no poison. And yet, that serpent was made to be the propitiation for this, the sicknesses of the people on the ground. The same with our Savior. Lifted up on the cross. Christ without sin being made sin for us. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And yet he knew no sin. So what a saviour he is. We, we, we thank God for such a saviour. The story of the serpent in the wilderness is in Numbers chapter 21. And about the serpent there, he, this would certainly be familiar to Nicodemus as Christ was speaking to Nicodemus. It was a story of sin. For the people rebelled against God and they had to be punished. God sent these fiery serpents. He sent them so that the people would be punished for their sin. It's also a story of grace because Moses interceded for these people. He prayed for them and asked God to provide a remedy. And God did. God told them to make a serpent of brass, set it up on the pool, and call the people to look to the pool. Look and live, don't die. Look and live, isn't that the gospel? Look and live, look to Christ. And it became a story of faith when many of those people looked by faith and they were saved from dying in the wilderness. And with this story, I'm through. On the 6th of January, 1850. Nobody here remembers that. But you probably read about it. A snowstorm almost crippled the city of Colchester in the county of Essex in England. And a teenage boy, as a result, was not able to get to the church that he usually attended. So he made his way to a nearby primitive Methodist church where an ill-prepared layman was standing in for the absent preacher who was not able to attend because of the storm. And this preacher took as his text Isaiah 45 and verse 22. And it simply says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For many months this young teenager had been miserable, and under deep conviction of sin. Even though he had been reared in the church, his father was a preacher, and his grandfather was a preacher. But this young man had no assurance of salvation. However, the unprepared substitute preacher did not have much to say that day, except to keep on repeating the text, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And then, breaking off, he said, Anyone can look. Even a child can look. And just at that, 
he spotted this young teenager sitting in one of the side pews. And he shouted at him. And he said, young man, you look miserable. Young man, look to Christ. That young man did look to Christ. And by faith, he was gloriously saved. And friends, that's just how the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted to the Savior. Isn't it amazing how God works in the most mysterious of ways? The difference between perishing and living, the difference between condemnation and salvation is saving grace through faith in Christ. Christ could well have come to this world as a judge and destroyed every rebellious sinner. But in love, he came to this world as our Savior. And he died for us on the cross. And he became the uplifted serpent. The serpent in the wilderness in Moses' day brought physical life to dying Israelites. But thank God Jesus Christ gives eternal life and spiritual life to anyone who trusts him. And in the words of the hymn, I urge you, only trust him. Only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you. And he will save you now.